Uh, you remember the, the tornado in The Wizard of Oz? Well, imagine that, but composed of pure, searing flame, but still dragging trees out by the roots. Trees being dragged up into its sort of more lampposts being dragged up in the sky, and people too. People being sort of literally being picked up off the ground and burnt as they could whirl around in the sky above. I mean, it's just, just terrifying. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. In the closing days of World War II, the British Royal Air Force and the United States Army Air Force dropped more than 3,900 tons of high explosives and firebombs on the city of Dresden. It was not strictly only a military target, and the story of the bombing has captured the imagination of everyone who survived and those who studied the war afterwards. And it had long-ranging consequences that we're still talking about today. One of the people who has studied this is Sinclair McKay. McKay is a literary critic for The Telegraph and The Spectator in the UK, and his latest book is The Fire and Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you very much for asking me. All right, so we, we'd like to get some basic stuff out of the way at the top of the show, usually. So can you give me the, the broad outline of the firebombing of Dresden? Um, and in my mind, I always call it the firebombing, although it's not always called that. Uh, but that's an interesting point, actually. Um, yes, the, I mean, it, 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 it has haunted the imagination since, uh, since February the 13th, 1945, which was the night upon which 796 Lancaster bombers from the RAF uh, flew over the city of Dresden and dropped not only high explosive bombs on the city, but also thousands upon thousands of incendiaries, too, uh, because for the air chief marshal, Sir Arthur Harris, uh, it wasn't enough simply to blow buildings up. Uh, he wanted an entire city in flames. Uh, they had done this before in Lübeck. They had done it in Hamburg throughout the course of the war. Now, Dresden, uh, because the atmospheric conditions were perfect that night, uh, became this kind of terrifying crucible in which flame started joining with flame. So the reason we, we refer to it as a firebombing is because Dresden is remembered for the firestorm that rose over the city throughout the course of that night. And then uh, the, the, the American Air Force came in the following day uh, to, to go for their specific targets, the railway marshalling yards, various factories, and they were, in essence, bombing a city which was already a wilderness of molten ash and flesh. Why was Dresden a target? Well, let me. It's, it's interesting to point out where Dresden is geographically, to put it in kind of context. Dresden is in the very, very far east of Germany. It's quite close to the Polish border. It's quite close to the, the Czech border. And it's only about 100 miles or so away from Prague. So in a sense, it's, the cities always have that kind of, not a specifically Germanic feel, but a, a kind of middle European feel. Uh, there's, there's always been something slightly kind of fairy tale about it from that point of view. Uh, it's a city that's deep in the valley of the River Elbe. Uh, it's surrounded by these kind of rich 
haunted Saxon forests and these beautiful kind of rocky plains. Uh, and since the 18th century onwards, it had been part of almost as a grand tour for both Europeans and Americans alike, actually, from the 19th century onwards. Washington Irving went to live there for a long time. Uh, you know, the, the author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He adored Dresden. And so what you have is a city that is known for its amazing Baroque architecture, its fantastic art, its extraordinary kind of music, from Wagner to Strauss. And in 1945, uh, when the city was targeted, there was an instant moral recall because a lot of people thought, this can have no possible military significance at all. This, this is a beautiful city that's simply being bombed for the sake of it. It's almost as if it's some form of atavistic vengeance that's being poured out of the sky. That wasn't quite the case, however. Uh, the, the, the Red Army on February the 13th, 1945, was about 60 miles or so away from Dresden. And Dresden itself was an incredibly busy transport hub for the German military uh, at that stage in the war. So important, in fact, that at the Yalta Conference a few days beforehand, when uh, Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill uh, were, were meeting, Stalin requested specifically that Dresden be added to their target list. Because, as I say, because of these intense German troop movements and um, sending equipment all the way to the Eastern Front and hampering the Red Army, uh, but also because Dresden's factories, of which there were a great many, were all totally engaged in war work, everything from ammunition to ordnance to optical instrumentation, and factories incidentally staffed by slave labor. So there is a kind of duality in the story of Dresden. It wasn't just uh, this extraordinary fairy tale city, uh, it, it also had in, in, intense use to the Nazis, who at that stage of the war, remember, you know, because with hindsight, we can say, yes, this was the closing stage of the war. But no one knew that the war was going to end in May 1945 at that stage, even though it was clear the Nazi regime was pretty much over. They were still fighting with extraordinary viciousness and vigor. And there was genuine fear, actually, among, uh, among the uh, 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 American command and British command, too, that there would be thousands upon thousands more casualties before the war would end. So partly, Dresden was also a target because it was simply a desperate, almost irrational move, I think, simply to make the Nazis stop. Right, there was this sense, again, with hindsight, looking back, in those final months of the war, that the Allies are trying to use overwhelming force just to finish things off, right? Because they, no one had ever quite seen a yeah. war like this. No one really knew what it was going to take to make an enemy stand down. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is a global conflict which has claimed so many countless millions of lives uh, up to that point in 1945. Uh, and you can imagine just the exhaustion of total war. And on top of that, the, the older figures in the command who had seen that previous terrifying conflict, the First World War, uh, who had lived through that, this to them must have just seemed a world of blood and horror. And as I say, I, mean, I, say, I argue in the book, actually, there was a point in 1944 when, the, the, certainly in terms of the bombing campaign, the Allies, I think, passed beyond strict rationality. The, the, the decisions they're making are no longer completely rational. They're, they're, they become much more kind of haphazard and instinctive. And yes, as you say, there was, there, was a, there was an American soldier, actually, who went on to become a very distinguished American literary critic, Paul Fussell. Who, who was fighting, he was there, I think, at the Battle of the Bulge. He was one of those um, people fighting their way through the, the horrible, freezing Ardennes uh, in those closing stages of the war. And he remembered thinking, uh, he wrote sometime later, 
uh, you know, it, was, it must have been clear to the Nazis that they were finished. So why, why would they, why would they, why were they not acknowledging it? Uh, why were they not surrendering? Why was there no sign of surrender? So yeah, I mean, part of the tragedy of the story is 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 trying to read the motivations of this because I mean, I don't know about America. This wouldn't be the case, I don't think, in America, but in Britain. Ever since the bombing of Dresden, ever since February 1945, there have been substantial numbers of people who have demanded that it should be labeled a war crime. No, we'll talk about that, because I, I do think it's interesting to kind of put that in the European context for people in America um, who may not quite understand like how important this was. But the, like this bombing has, has, since it occurred, become um, you know, a football and a political game a little bit, right? Yes, uh, and continues to be so to this day, actually, uh, in a terrible sense. I mean, it's understandable because ever since it happened, actually, Dresden, rather like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, has, has become a totem, a symbol of the horrors of total war. You know, this is what happens uh, with the, the shadow of total war. The civilians just wiped out mostly. Because in the case of Dresden, I mean, the numbers are kind of almost unfathomable. 25,000 people uh, incinerated or baked or mummified or simply crushed to death in the space of one night. 25,000 people. It's a, a figure kind of almost beyond comprehension, really. Uh, and so almost as soon as it happened, in Britain and in America too, there was a tremendous moral recoil. Uh, the, the American authorities were the first to kind of recall because it was an American reporter who was the first to say that this was terror bombing. Uh, he didn't actually use the phrase in a pejorative sense, curiously enough. He said, <laughs> he said that uh, finally, the, the Allies are using the technique of terror bombing in order to, to smash the enemy into submission. And the, uh, the, uh, you know, the American authorities saw that and absolutely recoiled uh, because the, the, the Americans would be most insistent that what they did was precision bombing. Uh, the Air Force, the American Air Force, always flew by day incredibly, horribly kind of hazardous, as you can imagine. And they picked out very specific targets. In the case of Dresden, railway marshalling yards and, and factories. The British always bombed by night, um, which meant that accuracy was all but impossible, uh, even with Marcus Blair. So there you have the start of the, the moral debate. The reason it's echoed throughout the years is because of, of the immediate aftermath, Goebbels looked at the horrific destruction in Dresden and decided that that still wasn't quite enough. So he decided that the figure of fatalities was 250,000, a quarter of a million. And he ensured that that figure was the one that went around the world, that the Allies had murdered 250,000 people, among them many, many rural refugees. And the idea from the Nazi side was that at last the world would see that the Allies were every bit as steeped in innocent blood as the Nazi regime. And this continues to echo to this day. There are those who continue to wildly inflate uh, the, the, the number of fatalities, as if you have to inflate. I mean, 25,000 is, I would have thought, sufficiently horrific. But there are those in the far east, on the far right in Germany today, and elsewhere in Europe too, actually, uh, where this is still a huge political football, because there are now those who are saying, uh, yes, uh, this, was, uh, this was for German civilians, their Holocaust that kind of language is being used. And it is genuinely chilling uh, once you start to look at, look at the people who are going down that road and seeking to hijack history in that way. So yes, to the people of Dresden, uh, the, the history is incredibly sensitive. Memory itself is a battlefield. And the way that it's commemorated every year is, is done with immense dignity um, and actually with some beauty too. But they form a human chain around the old town. 
on the day of commemoration, February 13th, right the way around the historic city centre, which, which was destroyed in this firestorm. And the reason for the human chain, partly, is to keep the extremist lunatics out. The ones who want to say that, uh, yeah, yeah, the ones who are basically saying, uh, yes, yeah, sure, we agree the Nazis were bad, but the Allies were every bit as bad to everyone as a criminal. And the, the, once you start drawing those kind of moral equivalences, you then start to find yourself in some very dark company. Well, there is this, you, you lighted on a couple different things I think is very interesting about uh, strategic bombing in World War II in particular, uh, they were still kind of figuring it out and figuring out what it was for and trying to justify its use, yeah. right, at the time. Uh, so the, the the distinctions between the British method of bombing and the American method of, bomb, method of bombing I think is very interesting. Um, another thing that you touched on that I kind of want to highlight for the audience is there was this sense in some portions of uh, the Allied leadership at the, especially in the closing days of the war, that um, to defeat Germany was not only about defeating them militarily, right? But there were portions of German culture that had to be eliminated to stop them from being warlike. Um, and I think that Dresden kind of highlights that. And it's not something that we talk about a whole lot uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a fascinating point, and it's, 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 it's uh, you know, and it continues again to be a, a fault line today, actually. I've been speaking to, uh, you know, not only friends in, in Dresden, but also a, a number of different sort of German people who assume, actually, that one of the main reasons for the bombing was that uh, Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris, in particular, genuinely, just literally wanted to stamp on the center of German civilization because he saw German culture itself as the root of Nazism. And only by stamping on German culture could you eradicate uh, the threat of Nazism forever. Now, uh, it, it's certainly true that Arthur Harris was unyieldingly hostile uh, to the Germans, not just the Nazis, but the Germans. Uh, he, <laughs> he did genuinely loathe uh, the German people and, and and possibly some German cults too. By any slight hesitation about that argument in the case of Dresden, particularly, is that um, it was actually a much more kind of pan-European city than that. There was nothing. It was the, 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 one of the wonders of Dresden actually was that it wasn't kind of the peak of German civilization or German culture. It was the peak of a very kind of middle European culture too. Uh, as I say, the Baroque architecture that we see so miraculously rebuilt today, perfect in every kind of particular, uh, draws influences from kind of all, all corners of the continent, actually. And on top of that, uh, Sir Arthur Harris, although he was very articulate and very intelligent, uh, I don't think would have known a Baroque church if one actually collapsed on his head. And I don't think there's any particular evidence that... Uh, he was fixated by Dresden in that way. He always said afterwards, actually, uh, in his own defense, he, he always rather gruffly said, I never went in for terror bombing. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to do. He genuinely believed that simply uh, pouring fire upon a city uh, would stop the Nazi regime in its tracks. He, he genuinely could have thought that was the case, even though time and time again it proved not to be the case. Uh, Hamburg, most famously, in 1943, when again, a firestorm that rose a mile into the sky, uh, and some 43,000 people killed, many of whom were simply liquefied or drawn up into the air into this terrifying fire tornado in the same freak of physics that you see in Dresden, actually, as well, where the very elements are going to bend, and the air is turned inside out, and lungs are scorched. I mean, this is terror beyond kind of imagination. Uh, you would have thought that an attack like that on Hamburg in 1943, uh, which was so, so, so extraordinary that 
the rats in the city were the sole survivors, and the rats grew fat, uh, dining on all the corpses. You would have thought maybe that would have made the Nazi regime hesitate. It didn't. It didn't cause a blink in the Nazi regime. But somehow Bomber Command didn't quite register that. So, yes, there is something slightly atavistic about this, this pouring fire upon a city. It's so ancient and so dark, that impulse. It goes right back to the, the, the very dawn of history itself, actually. There's this kind of instinct to, to, set fire, to set fire to one's enemy. The Americans were always different, um, and technology is interesting. Uh, you're right; technology developed throughout the war. It was developing fast towards the end of the war too, as it was with the Germans, with the V1 and the V2 rockets, uh, for instance. Um, and the American technology uh, with the bomber crews was getting better. And you know, this you know, there was a semblance of precision bombing. It, obviously, it couldn't be anything like the, what we have today. But you know, the, the uh, you know certainly the intention was there. And I might also quickly point out the courage of those American air crews and British air crews too, those British bomber crews and American bomber crews. I, I, I don't know how they did this. I really did. I've read so many memoirs and diaries uh, of those young men who, who fought so incredibly uh, psychologically. I, I, don't, I still can't work out how they did it. That kind of courage seems to be on an almost unearthly scale. It just reminds me of Catch-22. Um you know, I think the, the, the fiction I've read about these kinds of things helps me process what was what was going on in the headspace of those men. Um, and Catch-22 really yeah. really highlights the bomber's, you know, life uh, and struggles for me. And speaking yeah. of, here, how's yeah. this for a transition? Um, how does Kurt Vonnegut factor into all of this? Mm. Well, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, um, again, I mean, uh, it, Dresden then led to one of the most uh, extraordinary works of 20th century literature, Slaughterhouse-Five. Young Kurt Vonnegut, I think he was uh, about 22, when he was taken prisoner of war in Germany. He was, he was serving uh, with the Allies in Germany. Uh, he was taken prisoner of war in the winter of 1944 or 1945 uh, and was basically attached to what became a slave Labour Party that was taken to Dresden. Um, and he knew that Dresden was one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, if, if, you know, if not in the world. There was very little that he was obviously able to see of it as a prisoner of war. He was held uh, along, with his, uh, along with his comrades in an abattoir just on the edge of the city, uh, as a, a concrete structure underground amid kind of horse carcasses and pig carcasses. Basically, he was held in a slaughterhouse. Uh, slaughterhouse number five. And on the night of the bombing, ironically enough, because he was being held prisoner in the structure, he, he may well have been a great deal safer than many of his Nazi captors. But there is the enduring horror of what he saw afterwards. I mean, his account of Dresden in the days after that bombing, when it was his job as one of the slave laborers to go into the wholly inadequate brick shelters that were there for the people of Dresden. They had no proper bomb shelters. They were just these brick cellars, basically, which people had been sitting in and which people had been killed in. And Vonnegut, among others, had to go down the steps into these just appalling kind of mausoleums. He said the smell was like mustard gas and roses. The heat that came out of these brick cellars was incredibly intense. And he looked upon figures that were basically sort of mummified um, or, or well, just in the most atrocious kind of states. You know, there, there was a, a decapitated head still wearing a hat. And he described himself as a corpse miner. Uh, his job is now corpse mining. 
It's just an unbelievable, uh, obscene spectacle that he had to 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 gaze upon. And uh, yes, I mean, how do you how do you kind of begin to process that actually in the in the years afterwards? He didn't write Slaughterhouse Five until 1968 or 1969, I think. But he went back to Dresden in 1967 uh, to to go and look around what was now a city within. Uh, within the realm of the Soviet Union. It was in the Eastern Bloc. It was the, the German Democratic Republic. It was a communist city, uh, along with all others in East Germany. Uh, Vonnegut went there uh, to have a look, to have a look at the way that the, the, it had been kind of rebuilt by the Soviets in this kind of modernist style with all the housing and the shops and all that. Slaughterhouse-Five then, then came out of that. And it's, it's an, an extraordinary story. It's, it, it, time travels kind of back and forth. The hero, Billy Pilgrim, seems to exist in all these different time streams, but it leads, all roads lead inexorably to the horror of Dresden. And, you know, the, the novel receives you know, the immortality that it deserves um, as a result. I think, remember, when I first read that, uh, I had to read it in high school. Uh, the part of it that's always stuck with me is his introduction where he talks about how hard, how it took him, as you said, until the late 60s to finally write this book. It took that long to process the horror that he had seen. Um, and you do an incredible job in this book of kind of giving a street eye view of what's happening. You you concentrate on the people who live in Dresden. There's a lot that, you know, there's, that's a large focus of the book. Um, can you tell me about some of the, you know, aside from Vonnegut, some of the other people that really struck you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of this book was, uh, you know, this book is, it is military history, but it's not military history in the sense that I wanted to see uh, this horrific event through the eyes of those who were on the ground and also those who were in the air too, you know, the, as I say, you know, the incredible bomber crews who were, who were carrying these raids out and yet still sort of somehow retained that kind of humanity. But also, yeah, I mean, in the Dresden City Archives now, they've done the most amazing job in collecting and collating sort of hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitness accounts, which obviously I spent a very great deal of time sort of going through. It's a fantastically welcoming city now, by the way, actually, it has to be said. Uh, really, really kind of wonderful to visit and to work in, too. But yes, uh, to, to read all these kind of hundreds of accounts, uh, kind of immeasurably haunting, but in so doing, uh, try and build up a mosaic, a kind of a mosaic picture of the city as it was in the days before and on that night of horror and in the days after, too. Just what it did to the ordinary people, because again, uh, this isn't sto- this isn't so much a story about soldiers. It's a story about women and children and grandparents, and also about rural refugees. Those all those who are fleeing the Red Army, all those people who happened to be in Dresden uh, on that one night. And there, there are accounts from people who were children uh, at the time, uh, uh, which are of course immeasurably haunting. Now these were children born into the darkness of Nazism. A world of Hitler was the only world that they had ever known, if they were kind of under the age of ten or so. But nonetheless, you know, on on the day before the bombers came, uh, it was a day of carnival for the children. Uh, Shrove Tuesday, which by tradition, in that part of the country, the children dress up in all sorts of fancy dress costumes. And even though this was so deep in the depths of the war, and even though all their fathers were away fighting on the Eastern Front or, or wounded or dead, the children still dressed up on that day and their their clowns outfits and their, their little devil outfits. And there was that that. Could, semblance of normality for their, for their mothers and their grandparents too. And yes, I was trying to see it through all those eyes. So by the time the air raid sirens started that night, uh, you know, the children were tucked up in bed, the mothers and the grandparents were listening to their radios, 
and life in the kind of city was going on. There were kind of, there were workers drinking in the taverns. There were there, there were sort of artists there. there was, and as I say, there were rural refugees going through. And it was just trying to build up a composite picture through through so many different eyes. Uh, uh, and what it's like to live through that level of bombardment. Uh, what it's like to witness a firestorm rising a mile in the sky and only just escape it with, uh, you know, by the skin of your teeth. All right, we're going to pause right there for a break. You're listening to War College. We are talking to Sinclair McKay about his new book about the firebombing of Dresden. Welcome back. You are listening to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. We are talking about the firebombing of Dresden. This is something we've teased, and I, I, I would like to go into a little bit more. Um, can you... You kind of said that there there were unique weather conditions that evening, um, and it created kind of it created a firestorm. So, what is exactly a firestorm, um, and why is it in particular so devastating over these cities? Well, it's it, again an interesting question actually because it's still being because firestorms are still being investigated by scientists. Remember, recently Australia had those terrible bushfires, which uh, again produced firestorms, and scientists were kind of fascinated by some of the extraordinary kind of quirks of physics that you find uh, in these events. Now, it's quite difficult to create a firestorm artificially, and this is one of our Chief Marshal Harris's <laughs> constant sort of obsessions. But on Dresden, they just happened to have that night what were termed the correct atmospheric conditions. The air was still and cold. There was very little cloud cover. For whatever, that very particular set of, kind of meteorological conditions. But when those fires took a hold and started, you know, as I say, flames started joining the flame, and then a whole timber-framed old historic city started to go up, what then happens is that the, the, the force of the fire starts sucking all the oxygen in from all around, and that has the effect of creating near-hurricane force winds. But these are hurricane force winds, which by now are carrying millions of molten embers. Uh, so basically, if you're anywhere near those, uh, those molten embers land on dry clothes, you, you, you go up in flames instantly. Uh, if they touch your eyes, don't even think about it. And if you're closer than that uh, to this, this extraordinary kind of roaring uh, force, uh, it, it produces a fire tornado. Uh, you remember the, the tornado in the Wizard of Oz? Well, imagine that, but composed of pure, searing flame, but still dragging trees out by the roots, trees being dragged up into its kind of more lampposts being dragged up in the sky, and people too, people being sort of literally being picked up off the ground and burnt as they can whirl around in the sky above. I mean, it's just terrifying, uh, absolutely terrifying. And for those who are close to it, witnessing it, and for those who are in those brick cellars underneath, uh, who basically found uh, that either they were being baked to death or they were being poisoned by the, 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 terrible, the, the terrible chemicals that are being produced by this firestorm, and then uh, they got to a stage where there was a young physicist working in the city called Mishkodanos, and he was watching from a hill in the south. And he said the most terrible spectacle is he watched this a tower of flame just reaching into the sky. There's nothing anyone could have done about that. Uh, in the inner kind of suburbs of the city, all the windows of all the houses had obviously been shattered. Uh, roofs had been shattered to uh, you know, doors slamming back and forth. And 
the house was starting to go in flames. Even those that weren't close to flames found that their curtains were going up, their surface were going up. There was fire kind of everywhere. Fire was kind of inescapable. And the heat was just extraordinary for the, the widest kind of directions all around. So, uh, and as I said, there, there, were, there were eyewitness accounts too of the people walking on the streets who just appeared to spontaneously combust out of nowhere. And in fact, they, they hadn't. It was, it, was, it was kind of molten embers. But that, which also had the power to melt the tar in the streets. Uh, the tar was melted so that people could have lost their shoes and then found they couldn't walk in the boiling tar, obviously. And then they collapsed. And then they died where they were, just being burnt to death. As I say, these, these are stories that are too terrible to dwell upon, actually. But at the same time, you know, when you're writing about a particular moment of horror in history you do have, you have to look at it kind of fairly fairly full on no i agree you can't look away um i think that's one of the wonderful things that your book does um and you also you you do such a nice complete history of the event and there's so much context on on both before and after and can you talk a little bit about what happens in the immediate aftermath of the bombing and then what happens to the city over the next few years? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the most extraordinary things I've found about the story actually is that uh, the, the, the instinct uh, towards uh, civic orderliness and rebuilding uh, seemed to be completely innate that having endured uh, this night of horror, whereas I say the entire historic city center was by the end of it, just a seething, cracking mass of 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 uh, boiling kind of boulders and ash and body parts, body parts everywhere, if not just of whole bodies. And yet, those who lived in in the areas around the old city that had been reasonably untouched, apart from, as I say, the windows being smashed and the doors being smashed in. Uh, found that they couldn't could have resisted. They had to find out what had happened to, to, to loved ones, to families, to friends. And so people started to, to as far as they could, to explore this, this kind of nightmare wilderness. Uh, the, the, the parts of it that weren't too hot to walk on. And there were kind of the vast boulders where streets had once been. People got lost because they couldn't navigate or orient. But uh, the Nazi authorities, uh, there was a chap from Berlin was sent along called Theodor Elgering. He came down from Berlin to try and uh, coordinate some kind of civic response. But in fact, it, it kind of didn't need uh, these kind of Nazi overlords to it because the city was doing it for itself. The, 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 doc, the city's senior doctors, for instance, had been working all the way through. The hospitals had stayed open. They opened up military hospitals in order to take in more casualties. On the medical side of it, they were extraordinarily organized. On the side of getting people out of the city, you know, as of 78,000 apartments had been completely wiped out in the space of one night. And those who survived obviously had no homes. Where were they to go? They, the the, the lo local people organized billets in nearby villages. And so people took to the roads and were guided uh, out of the roads. Food was brought in. Uh, tea was brought in. People were kind of extraordinarily looked after. There were volunteer medics coming from around uh, the nearby parts. There were volunteer firefighters who came in to try and do something about the, you know, the, the seething rubble that remained. Within a few days, they had the railways back up and running, uh, which I just find extraordinary. It also makes a mockery of any idea that bombing railways is somehow an effective strategy. It just never is. Um, there was a postal system within within two days. And so, as I say, and also just... just 
small outbreaks of kindness and generosity. One of the most famous systems, and we haven't touched on this at all, actually, but out of a population of 6,000 Jewish people in Dresden before the Nazis came to power, by February the 13th, 1945, there were 198 Jewish people left in Dresden. And among those 198 people, they knew what had happened to all the friends and family who, who'd been deported uh, to the death camps. There was no secret about it. But one of the most famous uh, of the Dresden's Jewish citizens was uh, Professor Victor Klemperer, who kept the most amazing diary of his kind of war years, absolutely forbidden. He, the Jews were not allowed to keep diaries, but he kept it hidden. And uh, his account was somebody, he and his wife managed to get through the inferno, having seen illimitable horrors. His wife tried to light a cigarette on what she thought was a bit of burning rubble. It actually turned out to be a corpse. Uh, but as that morning dawned, um, before the American road came over, somebody came up to Professor Klemperer and pointed at the yellow star on his coat and said, now, take that yellow star off now. The, the, no one will know. This is your chance. No one will know. Save yourself. And Klemperer thought, oh, right, okay. And he did. Uh, and partly it was his kind of saving. There was, uh, but there was, as I said, there were so many small points of generosity elsewhere throughout the story of Dresden, just people kind of behaving like kind of human beings, that kind of immeasurably kind of moving. Then three months later, uh, the, the Soviets move into the city. It's, it's May 1945, the Red Army come in, and they are very, very quick to establish total control. They put up street signs in Russian. Uh, they take over the schools. Uh, the, the Russian is instantly taught as a second language. They take over every single aspect of political life, every single civic structure. They take over the shops. They take over the factories. They steal all the equipment from the factories, spirit it back to Moscow. <laughs> um, and then by the end of the 1940s, it becomes part of the German Democratic Republic, uh, part of East Germany, and Dresden slides basically from one form of totalitarianism to another and doesn't shake that off until 1989. But in the course of that, it has to be said, and if you go to Dresden now, actually, interestingly, while a, a, a lot... Uh, the, uh, for instance, the Soviets put a great emphasis on rebuilding housing, naturally. There wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of money because they turned down martial aid money in the late 1940s. They wouldn't take it from the American gangsters who had bombed Dresden. That's how they could put it. Uh, so, but they set to work on rebuilding housing. And actually, if you go to Dresden now, you see a lot of those Soviet-era housing projects. And they're, they're actually quite kind of well built. Uh, they're, they're better than a lot of the equivalents in Britain. And they rebuilt the main shopping streets in the 1960s. They put in a 1960s palace of culture. Uh, so the, 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 the communist idea of rebuilding was this kind of utopian vision of we're, we're going to re we're going to restore Dresden as an artistic city, but in in Soviet terms. But now, if you go back to Dresden, uh, what you see is a city that's been rebuilt, recapturing its old soul. There's this Zwinger Palace, this Baroque Fantasia, has been perfectly restored, full of old masters and amazing paintings. The Frauenkirche the Church of Our Lady, this amazing Baroque church with a fantastic dome that had been built in the 18th century, which collapsed in the days after the bombing, but which now has been rebuilt in every perfect detail, including the exact colours on the interior of the dome when you go inside. Um, it's a Lutheran church, and you would think, 
when you go outside, it's ah, but this is a reconstruction. This is a fake because I know that the original was was destroyed in 1945. So you step inside, and actually, you don't feel that at all. You feel something quite different. You feel genuine life and vitality and soul, and you realise that it's in this building, radiating outwards, that the old soul of Dresden, this old artistic cosmopolitan, light, blithe, colourful soul that had been thriving before the Nazis came, has now finally been restored. Why were you drawn to this story? Because it has haunted the English imagination, certainly since 1945. Uh, it's certainly true. If you bring up Dresden anywhere now, if you bring it up in the pub, even, <laughs> you know, over <laughs> drinks with friends, uh, there's instant anger. Uh, and there are a lot of people who will say, Arthur Harris should have been tried as a war criminal. He should have been hanged for what he did. It touches some kind of nerve, uh, simply because... I think not just because it was an exquisitely ornamental, beautiful city, but just the the, 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 I say the horror of 25,000 people being burnt to death in the, say, in the space of a single night it is a kind of lasting moral stain on what had otherwise been, uh, you know, the great British narrative of the war. Uh, you know, the, the British stood alone in 1940 with the Battle of Britain, we had the Blitz, we had the, uh, and then there's the war in the desert. Uh, this uh, the, the particular British narrative of the war with all the war films that came in the 1950s celebrating all of this, no one would ever make a war film about Dresden. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things. Uh, there was an, a statue to Arthur Harris put up in 1992 in central London, and just the very idea of putting a statue up to him caused huge protests, an enormous amount of anger. But, you know, at the same time, what drew me to the story was, even though it's become a byword for all this of total horror, it's just wanting to find out about the why the city was regarded as this amazing cultural jewel. And it's been fantastic to be able to research all the, 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 the brilliance in terms of art and music and literature the city has produced over the, the centuries. a real, real pleasure to discover all of that. But also to discover the people who lived in the city. And also, on top of that, as I say, to read the accounts of those young men who, um, didn't, knew, that, who knew that it was a beautiful city, but were simply fighting this war in the way that they thought that it would stop the war as quickly as possible. And the, the, the nature of their missions, flying deep into enemy darkness night after night, knowing that there was every chance they wouldn't come back uh, because they'd seen so many of their friends being blasted out of the skies. It's just an immeasurably kind of haunting moment in history on all sides, I think. And on this, the 75th anniversary, it's just now passing from living memory. And that, I think, because it's, I know, there's something random about anniversaries. They're always daft. But actually, 75th isn't daft. It's, it's, because when something passes from living memory, you have to kind of acknowledge that it's important to keep uh, the, the history of it as live as, as much of it as you can. And to do tribute to the people of Dresden, who themselves are the, kind of the guardians of that history and making sure, as I say, that it's not, it's not hijacked uh, by those who seek to use it for their own sinister political purposes. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Sinclair McKay, the book is The Fire in the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945. Thank you so much for joining us on War College. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I thought this was wonderful. Thank you so very much. You, um, uh, I, <laughs> Sorry, I burbled off a bit. <laughs> well, one day I want to do an episode just, that's just all about how um, – in a, in a militarily ineffective strategic bombings are, um, and this made me think of it, it, like Dresden highlights highlights all of the reasons why. 
does bombing civilians ever work, and has it ever worked in the course no. of history? Now, people would say instantly, I suppose, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, but I think that there's... But I think that exists in a different the, realm. It, it exists in a different realm, and there's also... There's a lot of arguments in, cur- in current research that says that the Japanese were also about... They were already done. And we were already firebombing their cities, too, right? You know, those beautiful... Indeed, so yes, Tokyo yeah. in March nineteen forty-five. Exactly. Yeah. So all of those beautiful uh, wooden wooden buildings also gone up in firestorms. Um, but yeah, yeah, and nuclear yeah. bombs are like a whole other a whole other argument, right? Like you said, because that's that's simply vaporizing a city. That's that's going beyond even. <laughs> and the fact is that they haven't been used since. Whereas bombing civilians has continued. Uh, you know, we look at Syria now, and I, I can. It's, it's, it, I can't think of a single point in history where that has worked. It's because all you do is you make the survivors so furious. Yep. And <laughs> well, and you think you would think the RAF in particular, they've got all this great information from the Blitzkrieg. You know, all these stories about um, how it brought everybody together and it made everybody, you know, like yeah. it, it, it consistently. When they study yeah. the effects on the civilian population, that's the truth over and over again. It makes people harden up. Um, yeah. and doesn't it does the opposite of whatever its intended effect is you can't win you can't win a war just with bombs and there was you know in america in particular there was you know that was a really a i mean look at vietnam for so long um how much of it was just a bombing yeah. campaign because we thought we could win the war that way and like you said yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't work history doesn't bear that out at all it doesn't but they'll, they'll carry on doing it <laughs> And the way that, because it's just, it becomes a task of faith. I mean, yeah, I mean, Arthur Harris, I thought, was quite interesting that point of view, because within, you know, within the British command, you know, the, the, his superiors were telling him, look, drop this bombing of cities stuff, just go for the factories. Do what the Americans are doing. Go for the factories. Uh, that works when you go for synthetic oil plants, because it hampers the enemy. That has a direct, you know, effect on supply lines. We can see what the effect of that is. Bombing cities, forget it. But Arthur Harris would not be swayed. And in the end, neither would Churchill. Uh, Churchill, you know, in the end said, no, go for the city. Well, it, and then recoiled off. Yeah, and I think that that's, again, one of those things where there was – because because they had they had fought these wars with the Germans for the last, you know, not just World War One, but even going back before then, um, I think there was a sense that the, the German people had to be brought to heel in some way. Yeah, no. Well, I've, I've quoted, I quote, I quote in the book uh, Freeman Dyson, who actually is a brilliant contributor to the New York Review of Books these days. I hadn't realised he was still. I was, if I'd realised he was still alive, I would have gone to interview him because he must be about ninety-eight by now. Uh, but he was a young physicist at the time, and he was. He remember going to a cocktail party, uh, and he'd been in bomber command, and he was talking to some woman after the war, and they were talking about the ethics of bombing, and she said, "Well, it was perfectly right that we bombed the babies," and he said, "What?" He said, yes, of course we had to bomb the German babies, because otherwise they would have grown up to be Nazis, and we'd be doing the whole thing 20, again 21 years later. So, oh, right, okay. <laughs> and again, it's, it's beyond, it's not, it's not rational. No, no, I mean, at that point, those kinds of wars, what they do to a culture are, we don't, I mean, we're still figuring it out, right? It is, it's still in the grand scheme of things so new. Well, like the shadow of Vietnam over exactly. America still. I mean, you know, at what point is America going to stop examining Vietnam? Probably not for a very, very long time. It'll, it'll, see, what worries me now is that we've got literally a generation engaged in uh, wars overseas in the Middle East now. Half of it, more than half of it conducted in secret. And what are the ramifications of that going to be on our culture? Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. Um,
No, absolutely. This was a wonderful conversation. It is genuinely a, a, a wonderful book. Uh, you know, this is, this is a subject I'm interested in. St- strategic bombing and its follies specifically, I think, is uh, something we need to talk about more. Um, and I think your book does a great job of doing that while also being like a good piece of history that really focuses on, you know, it's military history, like you said, but also really focuses on the people that are caught up in that military history. Um, so it was good. Not It was unlike anything, unlike other things I'm reading right now. Right. No, well, good old Dresden City Archives. Anyway, well, thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to War College. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, you can follow us on Twitter at MJGAULT and at KJK Nodell and at war underscore college. We will be back next week with more stories about conflict from behind the front lines. Stay safe until then. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 smart bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.